This is Inside the Box. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. My name is Trevor Barrett, and I am here with my good friend, David Blakesley. David, how are you doing? Doing really good, Trevor. It's uh, fun to reconnect with you. It's mm-hmm. been a while. I think the last one we did was the uh, the three-part World Cinema Project mm-hmm. Volume 1 set. That seems like it was some months ago. Well, it was some months ago. How much, I mean, four months ago. <laughs> I, I mean, it seems like it was like early in the year, maybe still like late winter, early spring. But anyways, enough of that. I mean, it's just good to, to be back talking to you in person and uh, or not in. <laughs> sorry about kind that. Kind of in person. Kind of in person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Directly, not just the side comments on social media. That's kind mm-hmm. of what I meant there. Sure. Yeah. I always feel, you know. After a few months go by, and even if we've been t- keeping in touch over social media, I feel like I'm not connected anymore. I feel like it's been too long. So I'm yeah. thrilled to be back with you this morning. It, it, it is always a pleasure. And yeah, it's been my fault uh, for anybody who's concerned on the listener end. <laughs> <laughs> I have had just one of those summers, uh, and we have planned to get this recorded, and it's just been one thing after another. Um, I have very much appreciated David's patience and flexibility and uh, kindness in ex- in extending those to me as well. <laughs> well, I've had a pretty similar summer as well. I basically took the whole month of July off podcasting from my, you know, my personal, you know, podcast, my side project or whatever, uh, Criterion Reflections. And it wasn't a planned break. It was just the busyness of life and enjoying the season and not necessarily feeling you know, hardcore compelled. I just got to record. So it's a nice little, <laughs> little break. I've been kind of uh, having a pretty leisurely summer of it as far as uh, podcasting is concerned, but you know, uh, fall is coming right up. And so uh, maybe the pace will uh, reignite a little bit. It does start to feel like it's time to burrow into, to literature and, and cinema and then to talk about it at this time of year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think we've, we've got a pretty nice selection, which uh, mm-hmm. to me feels, you know, almost like the, at the other sort of polar end of, of Criterion box sets uh, compared to the World Cinema Project. These are much more contemporary in feel. They're witty. They're urbane. They're dealing with a fairly privileged set of society, which mm-hmm. is not exactly what you get when you're delving into the World Cinema Project, at least from a Western point of view. Uh, this is mm-hmm. a film trilogy or a Witt Stillman trilogy. Is that how it's uh, labeled a on the Whit box? Witt Stillman trilogy, yep. Yeah, yeah. And not one that came out as a box. Right, know? exactly. We're kind of on the on the fringes of what constitutes an actual <laughs> box set because these are three uh, spine numbers, uh, 326, 485, 807 that came out years apart. They have some similarities in packaging, but they weren't really issued as a box, as a unit, uh, where there's kind of a cohesive theme. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so we're we're kind of uh, you know from one one end of the spectrum to the other here, as far as Criterion box sets are concerned. But I'm glad we picked this one. I am too. Uh, I'll get into my experience with these films, you know, in in a minute, but. I bought this set when Barcelona was released and when they did compile them all so you could Mm -hmm. buy them in one box, which is how I got it. And I hadn't watched them yet. I've watched some of, you know, I've watched Whit Stillman's um, Love and Friendship 
Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I loved loved that film. I really do. I watched it with my wife. We've seen it several times now. It's just fun. Mm-hmm. We like Jane Austen stuff. Yeah. And for some reason though, I'd never stepped back and watched this trilogy until, <laughs> you know, having this excuse. So Oh, okay. So this is all kind of new to you. Huh? Okay. Yeah. 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 Cool. And, and at yeah. the same time kind of familiar because you know, with love and friendship, you, you, you get Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Sevigny mm-hmm. again in <laughs> in the last days of disco. Um, and that was kind of fun. So there was th- these were like films I'd never seen before, but that were very comforting to me, almost as if yeah. I had, you know, as if they were kind of part of part of my past. But But yeah, this was my first time. Well, yeah, and th- these are films that I had never watched kind of all back to back, but I'd, I'd seen them kind of years ago from when I first got the Blu-rays. I, I never saw any of these in theater. I did see um, Damsels in Distress when it first came out. Is that 2011, 2012, yeah. something like that? Um, because, you know, Whit Stillman was a Criterion uh, director, and this was kind of his big comeback. I think it was 11 years between The Last Days of Disco and um, and and... Uh, damsels in distress Greta Gerwig was sort of starting to emerge as a talent and and uh, kind of a, a personality to kind of track with and then yeah love and friendship my wife and I saw that in the theater as well a few years ago I don't have the disc though but that would definitely be a nice addition to the collection I think that those five features are the Whit Stillman mm-hmm. oeuvre there so yep. um, these are the three that got him started but I, I did watch them back when you know I'd kind of acquired the blu-rays and enjoyed them but they they felt like sort of like passing fancies but uh, as i've sort of gotten more of a sustained focus on them over the past several weeks on which we've been kind of putting this podcasting plan together uh, i've really become very affectionate towards the films uh, sort of as a unit you know i think putting them together in a box does make a lot of sense Um, they're they're a trilogy in the sense that they feature uh, some of a lot of the same actors in certain roles or in, in certain um, personality types and, and all of that and and the social milieu that they come from uh, is another one that is probably not as fashionable these days in terms of uh, mm-hmm. you know cinematic focus and so I don't really hear or see a lot of attention given to Whit Stillman films uh, in the sort of the discourse if you will the the film chatter on social media. Um, and and I think there's there's reasons that I understand for that, but they, they may be in danger of being overlooked or maybe uh, dismissed or even you know just sort of taken for granted and and underappreciated, or maybe even held in some form of disdain simply yeah. because of mm-hmm. their their subjects, which are not uncommon in film to to look at the this. Uh, the ubs, <laughs> the, the <laughs> urban haute bourgeois. Uh, you know, they're, we're used to seeing these people being castigated and and analyzed from a pejorative sense in film. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we talked we talked about the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. which they talk about in these films. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and yeah. I get that. I get that 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 particular there. They're, it's a it's a group that is ripe for criticism and stillman is not like these people deserve our praise and love and they're actually right i don't think he goes there at all but he's also recognizing some humanity to them and their own struggles and i think that people can take that and think these people are not worthy of my attention i want to bring this down 
Yeah, so, yeah. Especially after Occupy Wall Street and stuff over the last mm-hmm. decade or so, these these films, I, I'm sure, w- you know, for 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 some people, would probably really be a big turnoff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I think these are characters who are uh, the types of characters often treated with contempt. Either they're the villains, you know, uh, kind of almost in a sort of a cruel, you know, flaunting the, their wealth. Or they're just, you know, buffoons, so addled mm-hmm. by their privilege and the the comforts of their lives that they've really lost touch uh, or perspective, and so the you know it's an easy target for a scriptwriter to sort of, sort of, you know, uh, level jokes at their expense, drag them down a notch, and presumably the majority of, uh, say, say a more middle class or working class audience will just kind of join in the laughter because mm-hmm. they're just getting what they deserve. Uh, yeah, th- this is, I, I think you're right, that there's a common humanity and the set of predicaments and circumstances that uh, these characters are going through are very relatable if you set some of the socioeconomic mm-hmm. trappings aside and that, you know, people get together, people hang out, people pair up, people, is, and these are all young adults too, kind of sorting through their options in life, uh, taking advantage of pop opportunities that are presented, but wondering, should I go along with what sort of the system uh, lays out there for me? Should I forge my own path? I mean, all the, all the doubts and all the, you know, complications of sorting out and figure out your life's destiny. Who Who's my partner? Uh, am I going to shop around? I'm going to look for fidelity. I mean, even, even the, uh, the questions about, uh, you know, religion and, and, uh, you know, aesthetics and meaning in life. I mean, these are, these are the types of things that everybody deals with. Everybody sorts out in their own way and kind of the vocabulary of whatever social milieu they're a part of. This is one where I feel like, yeah, the, the, the wit, the, uh, intelligence, the you know, the subtlety of the, the crafting of the characters really is is very enjoyable and very uh, <laughs> to me very relatable. Even though I'm certainly not nearly as wealthy as these people, I, I am educated and I, I I enjoy the banter, I enjoy the cultural references, I enjoy the uh, you know the the subtlety or the the dryness of Whit Stillman's humor. That's <laughs> it's nice to have a film that just sort of is is confident enough that it doesn't have to just go for you know, vulgarity or blatant stupidity or, you know, comical excess, you know, it, it just sort of throws its lines out there. And if you get it, you laugh along. And if you don't, well, maybe this isn't the movie for you. So yeah, I, these are, these are just really fun. Uh, you know, uh, it's a fun environment for me to sort of settle into and uh, watch these young adults sifting through issues and things that, you know, for maybe me have perhaps been settled for a long time, but it's a nice <laughs> opportunity to revisit the, those younger years. And uh, several thoughts there that came to mind as you were, as you were talking. Um, but let me kind of step back a little bit to the, the type of people who are portrayed in these films being fairly wealthy, you know, mm-hmm. um, not a hundred percent across the board to an extent. We'll maybe get into that a little bit with metropolitan in particular. Um, not lacking though either you know no, no one in here is right. is dirt poor um and in in the last days of disco we have a certain group of of young women who have to gang up together to to afford an apartment but they can afford that apartment together you know they're, mm-hmm. they're also making their choices as to why they're not making a ton of money and they get help um they they have a safety net for sure that's that's always there and several of them kind of taken uh, you know, just at face value, especially I found in the last days of disco, 
are pretty awful people. Oh, yeah. And I don't think that Stillman pretends otherwise, and yet he still manages to make me concerned with their humanity and to feel things for them and to recognize it not so much as they deserve my hate as they deserve some compassion because I've been that stupid person too. You know, they're, well, they're, they're exactly, stupid yeah. in a way that I can, I can relate to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're young, they're short sighted. They're driven by strong impulses, feelings, needs, maybe even a sense of desperation at times yeah. because they realize that, you know, at this young juncture, they're aware of careers that can make you rich and comfortable and affluent and influential. Uh, and they're also aware of choices that can create extra hardships or uh, affect your social standing. And these are all things that, you know, you might may scoff at, you know, where you rank in the, the preppy society, but these are matters of, of significance and importance. And, you know, there's the fear of bottoming out of, of, you know, you've been born into a certain degree of of privilege and opportunity, but, you know, it's easy to flame out and fail. And, and that's a pressure of its own. So yeah, these are, these are young people where, um, although the, the conversations and the the situation immediately may seem trivial and passing, you know, a night at the disco or, Mm -hmm. you know, flirting in a bar with, with people in a foreign city, uh, or, you know, hanging out at the, at the, um, debutante ball after party, you know, there's nothing really heavy going on there, but you're, you're (laughs) making advances down a certain path, you know, and, and you're connecting with people in ways that will either, you know, ease the path or, or mess it up. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, you you sort of sense that there's tensions and pressures and they're all sort of self-aware enough that they recognize that, uh, yeah, the the choices are not always obvious. There's, there's a sort of a political, um, sometimes a, uh, a gender-based struggle going on here that they're going to have to negotiate and hope that things break in their, in their favor. And how brilliant again, I mean, you've talked about the wit of Whit mm-hmm. Stillman, mm-hmm. but to be able to tell a story through these episodes of conversations mm-hmm. where the conversation again on its surface, and maybe even when you dig down, you know, is maybe superficial or important only in a passing ma- manner, you know? And again, yeah. I can think of plenty of these conversations that I sat in on and thought were very important at 20, you know, and 22 or whatever age I was. Yeah. Yeah. Dropping your philosophers, your literary uh-huh. references, <laughs> putting it in big social context, all of that. Yeah. yeah. I just can't imagine writing a story based like w- with that kind of dialogue mm-hmm. and having it come together to form a cohesive story you know a narrative yeah. a, a a tale about these people and their struggles that i can look back on and realize man i i probably just heard a, a, about a novel's length of dialogue <laughs> and here we are um I, I, I there's so much to dig back into i i really really truly enjoyed this set and i know we're we're talking about it in general yeah. um i'm ready to go on and talk specifics whenever you are um, oh sure yeah but maybe before that, I, I think this, you, you mentioned there's a lot of reasons that this may, may have fit together nicely as a set of films um, to box up and, and, and call it a Whit Stillman trilogy. I mean, he kind of considers it a triptych I've read, and he, yes. he may even mention that in some of his commentaries, which I thought was really cool. But these are his first three. 
So watching them back to back to back and then watching the supplements and listening to the commentaries, we see a filmmaker developing, you know, from someone in, in the, in metropolitan who doesn't even know what he doesn't know at all. And who's doing it all in the middle of the night, trying to, you know, just rely on the the kindness of doormen (laughs) to let them fill in various places. Right. And with a copy of a book called How to Direct a Movie in His Back Pocket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and then to see it kind of develop and see the different types of films. And, um, And then I didn't know this until I watched The Last Days of Disco. But to have some of the characters showing up in that film from mm-hmm. Metropolitan and from mm-hmm. Barcelona, yeah. I thought that was really, really fun. And so this is a, I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to completely watch them separate, uh, you know, again, it just feels right. like I'm watching a really great project of uh, one, one thing, you know, a triptych, I think is a perfect way to put it. Three panels, one, um, one ultimate work of art. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's the Whit Stillman cinematic universe, right? Uh, at least for these three, and there and there are also all three films that were made in the '90s. You you know maybe in a bigger picture, you've got a sense of the mm-hmm. '90s emergence of indie cinema with Metropolitan being yeah. this completely out of nowhere, Saved refreshing. By and yeah, exactly. Candy, I think. <laughs> right. But, 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 you know, it got an Oscar nomination for best original screenplay. I mean, it didn't win, but that's an incredible coup for a guy who's, you know, he was uh, in his, I think, mid to late thirties when this film came together. So he wasn't just a kid like fresh out of film school. He, he had to sell insider rights to a New York apartment. I know you used to live in, in uh, New York city, mm-hmm. Trevor, is that like sort of, you've got first claim on an apartment that comes open like a contract or something? What is that? Oh, no, no real idea, actually. Okay. Um, just the, the, the property laws in New York apartments are so strange and generational. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, yeah. You it's a, it's an property. inherited thing, probably. Or a, a, yeah. It's, it's a property that's been passed around as sort of like a football season ticket or something mm-hmm. like that. Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And they have all these different, you know, rules and regulations for each building. Yeah. That they're all, it's almost like you're buying into your own little world and they're all different. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's a, bizarre, so basically, but it was a, it was a leg up on getting what must've been a pretty desirable, mm-hmm. you know, uh, residency. So he sold that for $50,000 and then used his social connections, favors, uh, you know, just kind heartedness of people that he knew to say, Oh yeah, I'll let you film in my park Avenue apartment or, I'll talk to the doorman and he'll let us go into the lobby of this other apartment at four o'clock in the morning so that we can shoot some scenes without disrupting traffic. You know, there's, there's uh, scenes that were probably not officially shot with all the right uh, permits and, and permissions. Mm-hmm. And also there's a little bit of a roguish uh, kind of, uh, you know, guerrilla filmmaking going on here, <laughs> which is a strange word to apply <laughs> to this particular setting, but, but it really feels like uh, an intrepid troop of young adults all getting together. I mean, most, I think everybody on the film was basically doing it for the first time. The actors in, in particular. Metropolitan. Yeah. In metropolitan. Right. So you've really got a very, you know, charming group of, of young people. Uh, again, set aside the, the, the wealth or privilege. Some of them certainly were very familiar in that scene. Others were just actors who answered a casting mm-hmm. call and this was their chance to, to step into it. And a couple of them, uh, Chris Eigenman and uh, Taylor, I forget his last name, Taylor you Nichols. know, 
Yeah, Taylor Nichols. So, so they they became Whit Stillman regulars and had a bit of an acting career. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I that's an element I didn't really pick up on. Although when you look at Metropolitan and just kind of watch it, sort of with a little bit of a critical eye, you realize, yeah, this is this is pretty low budget filmmaking. It looks fancy because mm-hmm. everybody's in tuxedos and you know ball mm-hmm. gowns and and obviously the, the 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 real estate where they're this is all happening is very pricey downtown, you know, Manhattan, I think East side. So, you know, these are yeah. again, people and, and uh, you know, a very privileged walk of life, but the filmmaking itself is, is pretty spare, spare and, and pretty basic. Uh, but it casts this illusion of affluence and opulence that I think is, is pretty, uh, it, it pretty remarkable. And, and I just, it, it, to me, it enhances the, the, the charm and the appeal of the film. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, and he talks in Metropolitan in the commentary about, okay, so I had this gold fabric my mom had bought. We threw that on the couch, you know, (laughs) or look at how terrible that shot looks. They're blacked out windows and we just, uh, I I think it looks terrible. And, you know, the other folks, oh, I don't think it looks so bad. They made it work with um, crazy, they, they got the illusion uh, by the seat of their pants. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it came together in a pretty remarkable way that does seem a little bit by accident, but of course a little bit by ingenuity as well. Um, it, it is it is a great way to look at that early period of independent filmmaking mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and see a film come together and realize too that they didn't know if it was going to work. None of them, you know, the oh, cast was like, yeah. we don't even know what this is about. We're just here sitting around talking, you know, trying to memorize these lines and, and yeah. with Stillman not realizing that when a studio passes on it, it means they're not coming back. And so he's <laughs> getting a lot of bad news, but he thinks they're just, you know, today I'm not going to have a chance to look at it, sir. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's it's a miracle this thing exists, really. Well, and I think, you know, he, he had must have had some kind of instinct. Uh, you know, that that's something I, it seems like he's making the movie that he wants to make. Uh, not not in a self-indulgent way. I, I'm sure he anticipated that there was a set that would connect with this film, but the way it kind of took off uh, probably felt surprising to almost every single person involved because, like I said, mm-hmm. he was he was scraping, you know, money together. Uh, most of the cast was working as like you know valets or or waitressing or or other jobs. You know, just basically getting by type of jobs hoping for some kind of a break and and they found it now not everybody here in metropolitan went on to you know an acting career mm-hmm. but it certainly made Whit stillman a a name and he did get financing for barcelona and then started getting more star power for the last days of disco because the first two in particular did particularly well uh, financially the last days of disco did not we'll maybe get that yeah in analysis down down the road in this in this conversation here but uh yeah he was kind of a a a hot young name an emerging talent and uh it's kind of interesting in some of the supplements to sort of see Whit Stillman taking interviews and presenting himself as a director of the moment as well but those are some of the side <laughs> things going on here uh the movies themselves. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah exactly uh, but, but an academy award nomination i must yeah, yeah. be it <laughs> yeah exactly and yet at the same time i think he has this kind of self-deprecating quality uh like you know yeah. i guess we want to get into the supplement the, the one interview with her he's got with dick cavett he's kind of giving dick cavett the side eye almost like this kind of defensive <laughs> posture like why are you you know 
treating me with such deference here or answering the questions <laughs> in ways that are not kind of glib and happy talky. Yeah. They're just kind of like, well, here's what happened, you know, <laughs> very matter a of little fact. Bit this imposter syndrome exhibits yeah. itself a little bit right there. Yeah, like he's a little yeah. bit maybe over his head if he's going to be coming across as some kind of hot young auteur, you know. Right. He's he's not trying to say he's Truffaut or anything like that. Right, right. Or you know, launching a cinematic revolution or anything. He's just a guy with a story to tell, a few stories to tell. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's been, you know, sufficient for his, his ambitions as a filmmaker. Yeah. It, and I think he comes across that way throughout the supplements because we get a pretty good picture of him from Metropolitan, filmed in, you know, released in 1990 all the way up to when Barcelona is released by Criterion. And so mm-hmm. we have a few newer supplements with him, but about a, mm-hmm. what, 20 or 15, no, 25 years later or so. Right. And he does still feel like he's able to talk to his cast and crew. They, they seem like friends. Mm-hmm. They seem to have to appreciate that we're all kind of lucky that this has worked out because we didn't know what we were doing ever, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but we're glad for it. And we had a good time doing it as well as sometimes miserable times being up all night or whatever, you know, they, 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 he does seem to have that. I really liked, I really liked listening to all the supplements because I felt mm-hmm. like I was also part of the films in a way there's a personality behind him that I really like. And that's Whit Stillman. Yeah, yeah, and and even like a, a community. I mean, and again, going back to Metropolitan, it really feels like Whit Stillman is certainly the leader of the mm-hmm. troupe. But everybody's kind of got their own little part that they play in it, and yeah, it just it's just it's it's a pleasant experience just hanging out with this this crew of of smart young people, uh, telling a story, tapping into some of their life experience, and giving us a pretty amusing hour and a half. So we kind of have talked a little bit about Metropolitan just by default of it being the first one in the set and and the you know emergence in the indie film industry. Let's get into some of the story about it, and then when we're through with Metropolitan, we're going to have to figure out which film do we want to discuss next. <laughs> exactly. Okay. The well, let's do Metro first or, or Barcelona. Um, but Metropolitan again. This was my first time sitting down with the film. I've seen it a few times now because we we pl- thought we were going to record this. Uh, you know. A, a while back. <laughs> right. right. So, and I did rewatch it this week in, in preparation and found it even better uh, on rewatch than I did oh, yeah. on the first one. I, I, I had a charming time with it the first time on rewatch. I really enjoyed it. And then watching it again with the commentary, I'm like, okay, this is settling into just being a delight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't necessarily think that when I first sat down to watch it, I thought, Oh man, who are these people I am being forced to spend time with? Because we start at the after party of one of these debutante balls. It's debutante season in, in New York City. It's a little vague on the time period. I mean, they and they say that Stillman kind of wanted to set it earlier, but didn't really have the budget to do much. So instead of trying to figure out how do I make this look old, he just thought, how do I make it look generic in terms of time period? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's sometime, you know, bef- before the last days of disco. So you know, I, I kind of kept thinking it sure looks like the 80s set in the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but he, he wanted, he really liked a lot of the movies from the 1930s uh, and thought about telling a story about this class of wealthy urban people and how would they live in today's society, you know, with top hats and walking around in their tuxes. 
well, people don't do that anymore. But no, there's a certain season of the year where they do, and it's debutante season around Christmas time in New York City, where you might just see these youngsters roaming the streets in tuxes and top hats. And so that's that's the that's the milieu that we get into here, and we follow an outsider uh, named Tom Townsend as he kind of by accident gets invited to one of these after parties. They need chaperones. They need, um, you know, folk, young men to be with them. And, and they also feel um, eventually they, they feel like they may owe it to him, but he, you know, he kind of becomes part of this group. Uh, but the first, what, 15, 20 minutes is, is one of these after parties where they're all, we're catching snippets of these conversations. I don't know the characters yet. I don't really know their personalities and I don't know, how the story is playing underneath the text that they're saying. And right. so I'm just hearing them just blathering on about <laughs> philosophies and, and it was, right. it wasn't painful, but I, I remember sitting there on my first watch thinking, if this is the whole movie, I'd rather we did, you know, the, um, uh, uh, the the other set with Andre Greg Gregory and Wallace Shawn where they just sit and talk for a while, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, especially, I mean, I, there's the initial sort of establishing scenes and then there's a little, the little mix-up over the taxi cab where there's Tom yeah. conspicuously wearing kind of a beige trench coat, not the a black... summer coat. A summer coat, yeah, <laughs> not the black evening overcoat. Um, it's got a lining. <laughs> he's a redhead which isn't and necessarily a discount you know a, you know doesn't discount or anything but he, you know he's just sort of stands out he's he's a, a misfit amongst this particular pack but um he becomes you know like i say ingratiated into the sally fowler rat pack sally fowler being the 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 daughter of this family and they hang out in her apartment. And so the sort of the social scene revolves around her. Uh, but you're right. There is this generic quality. The, the music is pretty much like, you know, Christmas music, uh, Christian mm -hmm. hymns. The opening dialogue is, is Charlie talking about the existence of God and, and how we all sort of mm -hmm. intuitively know that there must be a God, you know, and he goes on this little philosophical <laughs> rationalization of that. And it's like, yeah, is, is this serious? I mean, is this, is the writer really, trying to get us into some kind of philosophical reflection here yeah. or or what yeah. but you and i you know, hated start... charlie i hated charlie for the first little bit and well yeah he i mean he's one of my favorite characters well, sure. he, throughout he, the whole he... trilogy <laughs> well he's he's pompous he's full of himself but 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 it's it's like so earnest it's in it's in good faith i mean he's he's wrestling with the, the big ideas and then he finds uh uh tom the 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 the, the new guy to the group he's a dedicated socialist not a marxist but a fourierist you know? <laughs> which you know as a as a 19th century variant or kind of a precursor to marxism and just you know the fact that they're <laughs> they're playing back and forth with all these ideas obviously uh, tom's philosophy would represent a threat to the material you know uh prosperity of of this particular group their families their business interests etc and yet you know this is all being taken as a kind of a as an intellectual sparring match of sorts you know but on that very young adult level where they're they're kind of you know swatting each other a little bit beyond their reach uh but it's but it's all <laughs> kind of just banter rather than you know serious dispute or disagreement and that that was also kind of a nice refreshing sort of throwback to when you could just talk about political issues and not have it this kind of <laughs> intense visceral polarized uh you know 
let's just avoid it because it's going to get ugly really fast. It's like, yeah. I don't know, there's there's just a, almost like an innocence. Uh, Maybe even to, develop a romance with the guy who feels completely differently than you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've got a profound political disagreement if you really want to let it stand in the way, but he's kind of cute. And, it's just like, and, 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 you know, and he's fun and he's different. He's not one of the usual guys that uh, Audrey, kind of his uh, crush, uh, you know, there's something different here. There's a different possibility that in itself mm-hmm. is kind of exciting to her. And he's so, I mean, okay. So he, he's so familiar again. These are the things yeah. that I'm always yeah. like, okay, this is embarrassing that I'm like, Oh, I, I know this guy. It's probably me <laughs> many times, but the yeah. definition of mansplaining, you know, oh, he's yeah. probably never even read the text his philosophy is based on because he feels like he can go around spouting these um, ideas without ever having read things. He, he's talking to Audrey Roger. Um, yeah. She's kind of the main woman, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the, in the story. She I means she's one of many in this ensemble and it's a great ensemble, but she's probably the main one. She's the one who develops a crush on Tom Townsend and who shows up in the last days of disco, which is mm-hmm. much I love. Um, but she, um, she's more innocent in a way she's not in this group just for the the youthful parties and all of that she's she's got i don't know she's sometimes called a bit priggish but she's okay with that to an extent as well but at any rate um she's having a conversation with tom about uh, Mansfield Park, and he's talking as if he knows it all, and he, you know, doesn't like. Oh, that he's one. just like instantly dismissive of it, like, oh, that mm-hmm. one, that's 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 her worst, you know. <laughs> yes, and then it turns out he hasn't ever read the book. He's never read any Jane Austen. Exactly. But he doesn't admit <laughs> yeah. that sheepishly. He doesn't admit that, like, okay, you got me. I, I. He's just like, oh, you know, I've never read them. Why would I? You know, I've, I've, I, you don't have to read something. I prefer literary criticism, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. The critical consensus clearly says that this is among her <laughs> inferior works. You know, why? Yes. Why would you go against the grain like that? <laughs> and it's so fun to, to see that, and yet she somehow falls for him, and eventually, you know, she buys him a set. Of, look, I think anyway. I mean, it looks like she buys him a set of Jane Austen novels for Christmas mm-hmm. that she sees. I think that's the implication with all that, but. That's and then he goes ahead and reads with. them, and and he, yeah. so he is he is persuadable, you know. He is somebody who's <laughs> actually ready to take on some some new information and perhaps even adapt his thinking because he's still young, he's still figuring it out, you know. He's yeah. realizing that you know while understanding the critics or the sort of the the um, the, the consensus views on on different important artists, creators, philosophers, thinkers, whatever. It's it's helpful to know what what the other, you know, authorities say about those holes, but they're not quite the same as engaging with the source material mm-hmm. itself. And so yeah, that to me delighted by this thing yeah, you dismiss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, to me that's just again another throwback to the, you know, the the joys of young adulthood where you're really you know, getting out of, you know, the mandatory assignments of, of school and just taking on new discoveries. And, you know, as as a person who's enjoyed reading, of course, in more recent years, focusing on films with, with great reputations, it's, you know, I, I could relate to that character as well, Trevor. <laughs> you know, the guy who yeah. likes to throw opinions around that they've sort of picked up second or third hand. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, let's let's go back to the source and see what it really is about after all. Yeah, it's it starts to show that breakdown of that 
you know, ignorant arrogance mm-hmm. that we that many of us <laughs> oh, yeah. have probably had in our twenties, and and it shows why maybe later on we stop being so arrogant, even as we gain more knowledge and more experience. Mm-hmm. It's because we learn. I don't actually know that much, and we start to see that with Tom, mm-hmm. and we start to see some of these relationships bud. Even though they might not be, you know, everlasting marriages and all, you know, things like that, that just that they, they start to appreciate each other for for less superficial reasons, and they don't need to show each other what I know. They start to care for each other. I, I mm-hmm. love, you know, by the end, I love Charlie, um, the the character that I loathed at the beginning, <laughs> because he's the one yeah. who's still spouting weird things, but his conversations with the with Tom as they're trying to go and save Audrey <laughs> yeah. and they're going into all of the, the rental places. He's so funny. And so I'm like, man, I, I feel like I'm getting to know him for him now and see through the facade that he puts up that he himself is not, you know, too sure about. Um, and I, I just, I really love getting to know these characters and, and starting to care about them when, when really my guard was up at the first, it mm-hmm. really was. And even Nick, you know, we haven't talked about Nick Smith. He's the he's yeah. the one played by Chris Eigeman. Uh, I think the the my favorite character in the in the film. Even he, with all of his arrogance and his his little snide asides and his willingness to hurt other people, to make some of those snide asides, but also maybe to puncture a little bit where he thinks they're going wrong. Even he, I feel, you start to see ways that he is trying to do better. Ways that he's trying to actually be helpful. That he's put up a wall around in many ways to to not be so vulnerable. You start to see some of those vulnerabilities. And I really, really liked um, him. I've always, I mean, Chris Eigeman, his voice is one that I I didn't know who I was watching at first. And then I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, that's Chris Eigeman. Very young Chris Eigeman. In fact, his first film, Chris Eigeman. And realizing, oh, I, I love his, the, the way that he can just run through these lines is very similar to how he does things in like, um, you know, even an episode of the Gilmore Girls or something like that. You know, I just, he's a character that I, I or an actor that I've recognized from little things he's done that I always liked because they stood out to me. And here he is standing out at the very beginning of his career. So I don't really have a, a sense of Chris Eigeman outside of these films. Are there others besides this Gilmore Girls that you referenced that maybe I might connect the uh, dots there? No, none other films that I'm aware of. It is through like some TV and in particular okay. Gilmore Girls. He plays a character for a few seasons there. And, and whatever your feelings are about Gilmore Girls, I don't know if you ever watched it or whatever, but mm-hmm. you know, a television show that is also, you can almost see that they thought, you know, who would be perfect for one of these parts where people talk fast and a lot and have these, you know, unrealistic, but absolutely delightfully absurd and intellectual conversations. We need to cast Chris Eigeman. Okay. I'm sure. I am yeah. sure they had that conversation because they'd seen these films and thought we need to get him in there because, you know, even my wife, I said, Hey, do you, do you want to see Chris Eigeman as a, as a kid basically? And she looked at it and goes, Oh, there he is. You know, because of something like the Gilmore girls or, or whatever, where we'd grown to already kind of like his, his diction. I mean, he, he delivers lines really well. And throughout this whole, this whole trilogy, you know, I think stands out quite often in scenes he's in. 
Yeah, he definitely. Looking. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he, he he commands the screen in in each of these films because his roles really are and and you know they even talk about that i think in the commentary track mm-hmm. for last days that you know Whit stillman and chris eigeman were kind of like you know symbiotically joined or something like that in the first two films <laughs> um but and they didn't almost didn't want to cast him in last days but it's like no he's the guy he's got to be <laughs> the guy for this one you know and so so there he is but you're right he's he's really magnetic and i'm just kind of scrolling through his imdb so it looks like yeah tv is kind of where he landed he was in malcolm in the middle for several seasons, uh, the marvelous oh, Miss yep. Maisel more recently. So yeah, so so yeah, and and I can I can see you know these he's very talented. He's got a great sort of presence and conviction in, in delivering these lines, and here he is. Yeah, he is the the kind of the cynical. A guy who sort of is aware of a sort of essential, almost scamminess. I mean, there there is real wealth, there is real, you know, uh, influence and privilege and all of that. But you know, it's it's on a it's on a shifty foundation. He seems to be understanding of that and sort of wants to sort of you know, say like puncture some of the you know the delusions that that kind of prosperity and affluence can create about we're a cut above or we're better than the rest or, or anything of that sort. And, and he often has the great comic lines, you know, like it, it, playing strip poker with an exhibitionist <laughs> kind of takes away some of the challenge, you know, little yeah, things yeah. like that, that are just really, really fun lines throughout the whole, throughout the whole trilogy. Again, he often has little cutting lines that he delivers really well. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I was glad to see that he was in each of them and 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 enjoyed his his presence in each of them um anything else with metropolitan i mean again i found it quite delightful and and mm-hmm. and really thought that the probably the standout would be the writing and the delivery by these very young first timers you know uh taylor nichols um who plays charlie black who shows up again and again and who shows up on the commentary track so you feel like mm-hmm. you have another layer of getting to know him yeah oh, um, yeah it does a great job delivering these lines too. And that kind of stuttering almost sounded like Woody Allen at times. I, I, he talks in one of them in one of the commentary tracks about being typecast as people like, Oh, but you're from New York. And he's like, no, I'm, I, I, I'm from Michigan, but he, <laughs> yeah. he, he yeah. definitely delivers his lines in a, and, and just sounds like that New York intellectual who is a little unsure of himself and stutters, but you know, overeducated almost for his maturity. Oh, level. yeah. <laughs> well, right, right. He, he's, you know, you, you look him up. Yeah, he's he's really not an athlete. He's not necessarily going to be a, a commander in the business world. He's not really, you mm-hmm. know, a, a, you know, go for the throat lawyer or anybody who's, you know, going to be in that kind of alpha male situation. And yet he's, you know, he's born into wealth and he's going to somehow find a way to you know, carry on the tradition and, and, and yeah, there is, there is a nervousness and a pressure that, 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 uh, yeah. you know, applies when, when that's kind of your, your lot in life. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I really, yeah, I think he, he does a, a great job of playing that kind of overeducated, insulated, uh, you know, bookworm who's, who's, you know, still figuring out what's going to be his angle as he steps out of the real, real world yeah. on his own. Yeah. Definitely going, definitely well on his way to an existential crisis. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, definitely uh, an overthinker, you know, and uh, that, <laughs> that will get the best of him. So yeah, but I think yeah, Metropolitan, you know, um, shoestring budget, uh, attractive young cast, um, and and 
it was at a time when you know film going audiences were 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 interested in small chatty you know engaging uh, films at least there was a, a big enough audience that the the return on the investment was was enormous you know it grossed over three million dollars got the academy award nomination um mm-hmm. launches of maybe a few careers and you know so now all of a sudden here comes the pressure or the or the uh the duty the responsibility to do the follow-up and if we follow that course then we talk about <laughs> barcelona if we want to talk about criterion's uh, release schedule uh we could talk about last days of disco because that was the second one they released but it's also uh the way they package the trilogy and the box set so mm-hmm. i don't know you want to talk a little bit more about criterion's decision to make it kind of uh, a sequence like that. Yeah, I think, I think I I was confused at first, knowing nothing about the films. I thought, I know that they released these spine number orderly, you know, Metropolitan, and then the last days of disco years later, and then Barcelona at the end of them. But they made them Metropolitan, and then Barcelona, and then the last days of disco, you know, that's how Whit Stillman made them. In fact, mm-hmm. Barcelona was the first one that he wrote. It was his this first screenplay. And yeah. so I when I looked at the box and and I thought, well, they they might order him that way, but surely surely they acknowledged that they were done differently. But no, on the box, a Whit Stillman trilogy, Metropolitan, The Last Days of Disco, Barcelona. I mean, when did they do that? You know, I couldn't quite figure it out. And even on the back where they put the dates and how the runtime of the film it still lists them in that metropolitan, the last days of disco Barcelona order. But I'm, I don't know for sure, but I'm betting, and maybe you do know, maybe this is the only explanation is that they, they, when you look at these as a triptych metropolitan takes place first chronologically in American history. And then the last days of disco, like in takes place in 1980, let's say, you know, as, as a year. And then Barcelona takes place toward the end of the 80s. So chronologically and watching them in that order, I think would make a lot of a lot of sense as well. I did not watch them in that order. I watched Metropolitan and then Barcelona and then The Last Days of Disco. I was like, Criterion's not telling me how to watch these films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, They usually and, uh, do tell me how to watch films. But, uh, but in this case, I, re- I watched them in the order in which he made them. And I think that has its own strengths to see the development of a filmmaker of the, of the cast that followed him along that trek and to see the opulence of the, you know, the budget, you know, yeah. kind of creeping up into, in the, the quality of these films. But I can definitely see an argument for watch the last days of disco in the middle and then move on to Barcelona to catch the end of this. If you're, if you're looking at it as a, as a triptych where you want the centerpiece in time, you know, to be in the middle of the trilogy. So, mm-hmm. so what, what are your thoughts? What, what's your recommendation for how to watch him or organize him? I, I kind of tend to go by the chronological release myself. I mean, I just feel mm-hmm. like that's where you really see Stillman growing as a filmmaker. And I think mm-hmm. that, that to me is the prefer. I mean, if, if it was obviously a story, of truly interconnected characters or plots, then, you know, saving Barcelona for last might make a little bit more sense. But I, other than the fact that they might be set in, uh, you know, 
different time periods. I'm not sure you have to watch them in that order or that I don't think you gain anything mm-hmm. appreciably from that. Uh, and I, I, I always kind of thought that Criterion got Barcelona last because it was, I think overall the most commercially successful of the three films, uh, box office wise, and perhaps the studio rights were it a little bit Warner harder. Brothers. Yeah. It was Warner Brothers, which for years didn't license to him. Right. I remember, and the, and the, remember those days when we were like, is oh, Batman's yeah. ever going to get a release? It's oh, Warner Brothers, sure. so no. Exactly, and yeah, then yeah. it cracked, and we, we get some. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also the fact that The Last Days of Disco, I think, was seen as a financial disappointment probably made it a little bit easier to obtain as well. Um, and to showcase that film, especially with uh, Chloe Sevigny, who I think became kind of an art house favorite because of some of her other mm-hmm. roles that she took on and just kind of her own personality. So I guess my, my, my choice would be to go with Barcelona next. Let's, let's do that. That's my choice too, mm-hmm. is to just move on to the, you know, he made it a few years later, Metropolitan 1990 release, Barcelona and 1994 release. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Eigenman and Taylor Nichols are still young, you know, <laughs> so let's, <laughs> yeah. let's do it. Let's do it that way. And again, this is the first script that he wrote, but he realized I can't film this, that this is, I, I can't yeah, go an overseas shoot. Right. Mm-hmm. All of that. Mm-hmm. But I can maybe rewrite something that takes place in New York and figure it out how to get it filmed. And then, you know, use that as a springboard to finally film Barcelona, mm-hmm. which if, on a first watch and a second watch, I I, re- I think Barcelona is, in my estimation, a little bit better than Metropolitan. I enjoy it more. I like the relationships and the where it goes, even even more. I guess I should say than yeah. Metropolitan, which I still yeah. really you know like. Yeah, Barcelona is a, a more mature and accomplished film. It's got more. You know, sort of interesting variety of things going on. Obviously, an international setting. So you've got, you know, Barcelona, a very beautiful photogenic mm-hmm. city. You've got sort of the the, the cultural clash between, uh, you know, this this businessman, this young businessman who's kind of been sent over there to, you know, kind of stake out, you know, the the company's interests as well as his was it's his cousin, right, who's a kind of yeah. an advance man from the American uh, military from the navy uh and he's kind of coming in to, you know, sort of be, you know, the, you know the, the 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 American presence and figuring out uh, Spain, you know, they're they're friendly country. They they will kind of be happy that the, the fleet's about to roll in and all the benefits uh, that come with that only to be completely surprised yeah. that there's a, there's a hotbed of, of resistance and antipathy mm-hmm. towards the U S military in uh, what he thought was going to be a, a kind of a nicely allied, uh, you know, local scene. And maybe even too with his cousin. So the, the, mm-hmm. yeah. so the, oh, the yeah. characters, so we've got, they uh, have a Taylor backstory, Nichols, right? Right. And he he's playing the the business, the salesman in in Barcelona, and Chris Eigeman is playing his cousin who comes to to stay with him for three days at most, because you know, but any time after that would be too much. It doesn't work out that way, and we knew it wasn't getting from the from the get go. But but the Taylor Nichols character doesn't want him there. He doesn't trust him. Thinks he's a liar. Thinks he's he's exploitative, and Yet, there's a warmth to their relationship, too. They're able to bite each other and say things to each other that show that I don't really like you. But we can feel the the history of care, of concern. 
And I love that part of this film. I mean, there's a lot going on with the politics and with their waking up. I mean, there's an assassination in this film mm-hmm. and, and bombs. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But the heart to me is these relationships. And I, I, I loved that playing out in, in all of that other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I certainly can relate. I have, you know, cousins from my childhood where we, I have lots of happy memories of us playing together, but we end up getting kind of raised in different circumstances, you know, moved away, just, you know, you, you grew apart. You, you still have sort of have this bond that goes back, uh, even though, you know, you look askance at some of the decisions or choices they've made. And again, you've just got a couple of really interesting characters here. You know, here's the you know, the Taylor Nichols character here is a guy who's really going through kind of another sort of uh, spiritual, you know, crisis uh, where he's kind of figuring <laughs> out, you know, the, the the propriety and the ethics of, of his dating life, of his relationship with God and, and just kind of you know, moral and ethical choices. I mean, it's, it's the kind of stuff that you just don't off, you know, subject matter, especially mm-hmm. in a film of this sort, which I think is aspiring to be kind of a, you know, a, a, a you know, not a super broad entertainment, but a, a, an entertainment that you know connects with middle class audiences. Uh, that's that's amusing. It's a good sort of date night type of movie. You know, for couples to get together and just kind of enjoy. You know, the wit, the character, the the sights of Barcelona. I mean, you know, the, a nice location. It's a, a a pleasant evening's entertainment, I guess. But uh, you know, he you know the dialogue and the and the the, the subject matter just goes into areas that uh, oh, I'm I'm glad he's willing to even raise the question. Or, or, or touch on the topic, you know, the, you know, the surface appeal of only dating beautiful women and, and the, how does that compromise our willingness to consider the woman's character, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. how they, how they fit in my life as a positive or negative influence. It's just, yeah, just, just, you know, just a kind of a cool uh, layout of, of issues and, and topics and concerns. You know, it's funny. I I was sitting here thinking, why can't I remember the names of these characters? Are they now just the actors? You know, Chris <laughs> yeah, Eigenman yeah. and Taylor Nichols. But it's because it's Ted and, and Fred. Fred. <laughs> <laughs> not not names that that really yeah. stuck with me. Ted and Fred Boynton, um, or who they are, and they do feel. I mean, I can see the other than some of the life circumstances they still feel like the characters they played in the, in metropolitan mm-hmm. to me, you know, I've got, you know, Taylor Nichols still stammers. He's still a little bit more serious and a little more self deprecating as he's seeking self-improvement. Whereas Eigenman's character is a lot more the, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to put my punctuation mark on these conversations with maybe an offensive thing um, that does get him into trouble. Every once in a while, he's a little more hot headed, but charmingly able to articulate comedy as he does so. (laughs) And they, you know, very similar to their characters in the first one. And so it just felt comforting to see them still going on and fun to see, see the, those, I, well, the, the characteristics playing out in different characters and, and how Stillman is, is exploring relationships with, with the women, the religion Mm -hmm. and, and having the having I or uh, Taylor Nichols character not just interested in trying to figure out his religion, but doing it at the same time he's reading books on how to be a good salesman and just that. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, it, taking the, the Dale Carnegie philosophy seriously. Yes. <laughs> and really, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. mixing and mashing it, and you're like, oh, there's he's 
you know, Stillman isn't necessarily polemical. I don't feel like I ever thought he was trying to preach to me, but he is showcasing these characters and some of their foibles and some, again, that are very familiar, you know, um, this Americanism of mixing religion and business and, you know, sales <laughs> and, and capitalism and all of that is very much a part of this story and part of the critique that the Spanish um, antagonists, you know, I'm going to call them antagonists. They're not, you know, they come and give them handshakes and, oh, I'm sorry you got almost got killed because of my newspaper piece. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think an, a journalist should be blamed for, you know, just yeah. they, they are antagonistic <laughs> to these Americans because they're Americans. But you can see some of the reasons why in the way they're dealing with 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 their culture, you know, with with the the sales and religion and sure and yeah. all of that. I mean, if you decided to join up with the American military, uh, you need to be uh, ready to deal with the backlash amongst the, the disgruntled mm-hmm. locals when you're in our territory, when when you're not invited or not necessarily wanted. And again, you know, so yeah, checking uh, the the uh, you know, the, the quasi-imperialistic aspect of American military power and cultural influence when you don't expect it. I mean, they're not going into, you know, communist territory. They're going into another a NATO nation. Like, what, what is this? How can the Spanish be against the Americans? You know, it's, you know, it's just yeah, uh, Fred, Fred's uh, kind of worldview and, and his assumptions are all challenged there, but it's done with, with, with wit and humor rather than this kind of, like you said, polemi- polemical seriousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, this isn't Costa-Gavras here, you know? <laughs> right. I love those films too. Oh, for um, sure. Because he, <laughs> he can execute that argument and, and make it stick uh, for full dramatic impact. This here is definitely a different angle, but the fact that he's mixing those issues in there when this could just be a frothy rom-com of, mm-hmm. you know, American men and Spanish women, mixing and matching and, and at play in the, in the sunny environments of, of Barcelona, you know, even, even there, this, in the commentary, they talk about trying not to do too many, you know, postcard shots or tourism friendly highlight reels, but just what's the actual city like in the less publicized uh, corners. I've never been to Barcelona myself, so I would, wouldn't know, but, and, and some of the shots are beautiful. It's a, it's a great, you know, great world cultural center, you see the Antonio Gaudi um, architecture in the background there. So, but it's, but it's not, it's there. (laughs) It's not dwelled on. It's just sort of, that just happens to be where we are having this moment, this scene. It's it's not like watching the actual film, Antonio. uh, (laughs) Right. Oh, Gaudi, you know, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, it, it, that it could still be just a rom-com though, if you wanted it to be. Yeah, you don't ways. have to really go down those yeah. trails uh, and follow the breadcrumbs of philosophical yeah. or political, you know, controversy. But I just I like the fact that it's there because mm-hmm. those topics are part of our lives. Those are uh, yeah. issues and concerns that have an influence. They may not be, you know, certainly felt or thought through the same by everybody, but they're yeah. they're issues that are out there. And a lot of times, you know, uh, romantic comedies kind of sidestep anything that might even you know, mm-hmm. hint of controversy or complexity because it's just all about meat cutes and more basic emotional 
back and forth, you know, runaway brides yeah. or whatever. Yeah. We'll put them at a sporting event to show the tension, yeah. not in a mm-hmm. politically charged environment. Right. Yeah. Where but you're I... suddenly a victim of an assassination attempt just mm-hmm. because of the uniform you wear. Right. But I think um, and what I mean by it still could be just a rom-com is I don't know which one would be put in, in, in any hierarchy here. But once again, and I'm not trying to say this was his, you know, this was the most important thing, but because I think that he probably, you know, Stillman probably did want to really have these things evaluated in, in a film mm-hmm. that that just looks at them. But there are also, again, ways that we get to know these characters and their relationships, in particular with the Spanish women that they are falling in love with or out of love with. They're not quite sure how to respond to her. Am I falling in love with her? Is she too beautiful for me to love her? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you can kind well, of is there even a future in this relationship? Uh-huh. I mean, you know, really, are we really going to, you know, is she yeah. going to come my way? Am I going to settle down here? What's it going to be like? Right. Yeah, the heart still feels to me like a lot of that is used to evaluate these people as at their most real human beingness. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that they're not, these guys aren't just stand-ins for Stillman to look at Barcelona in the eighties and the, and American Spanish relations in the eighties. That's, that's the setting for humans to, to be, you know, telling their story. I feel like he's, really able to still focus on these as real people as unrealistic as they are in their dialogue or their wit that the essence there is still very heartfelt human being um Mm -hmm. you know interest in human being versus these are just pawns for me to to analyze politics Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and i think you know this is this is again based on stillman's personal experience not that he lived through all of the events depicted here but he was in barcelona that was his job during those years where he was getting ready to make metropolitan he was selling um spanish films i think to american you know distributors and and was you know living in barcelona so that kind of gave him uh, an angle of insight and authenticity. And, and he wanted to touch on the fact that there were these you know, political issues and controversies. And I even think the, you know, the cultural assumptions of how, you know, Ted, uh, that one conversation he's having with the women saying, well, you know, of course, women have to have this profound emotional connection for uh, <laughs> sexual desire to, to be expressed. And, and the women are like, oh, no, not at all. <laughs> you know, just, but again, you know, the, these, <laughs> these little assumptions and blind spots of how, Ted was raised to assume that this this is what women are like. This is how it actually operates. And then he finds in a different culture, a different place, you know what, there's there's a whole nother side to all of this. And again, that whole sort of expansion of awareness as a young person where you recognize life is much more complex and thereby much more interesting than perhaps you were led to believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well... It, it did have a surprising ending, you know, in, in yeah. many ways. Again, you know, there's the assassination attempt on Fred's life that does leave him uh, with a permanent injury. Mm-hmm. And it, and and yet we have kind of a heartwarming ending despite it all. And part of me wondered, does this is this ending subversive of the, the other parts of the film or is it underlying, underlining the humanity of the film that these relationships are possible despite it all um do you have any any thoughts on that the the way it kind of has a warm 
re- refresh me on the circumstances. I mean, the ending is kind of slipping out of memory, like the, the uh, which last is, scenes that you're thinking of here. Yeah. So, and and that's a very fair response. These these yeah. films don't necessarily play out like a a beat by beat, say say a Marvel movie where I can you know maybe tell you the general you'd remember maybe beat by beat because they're familiar, or the these, whole plot drives up to this riveting right conclusion. Here's the action this, sequence. Right. This right. is when so and so dies and everyone feels it here's and the profound reveal right. that kind of shows the the meaning and the tragedy of it all or whatever yeah and, yeah. and before i get to answer your question okay sure one of the things that i really yeah. thought was interesting too learning about how they made these movies is that stillman wanted the actors as they're going through these lines to still feel like when they were editing that the they were continuing to live their lives. They, we didn't just get a, a manufactured conversation. Mm-hmm. And so he would script That delivers a lines. point and that's it. Right. right. Mm-hmm. There's, the, there's the, the period at the end of it all. Um, so he would, he would write more lines and have them perform them. And then in editing, he would cut those lines out. And so it really does often feel like you're not at the end of a scene yeah. when the scene shifts. And it does feel like the characters are still living and still about to keep talking. And I really thought that was an... an a really cool insight to learn about how he did that. And I feel like the films are similar. I mean, they come to an end. You've got Metropolitan with the, you know, roadside. Um, uh, I mean, it ends in a still shot. It's all, it actually mm-hmm. does kind of go back to Truffaut, David. Wait, we're, we're onto something here. <laughs> Let's um, start over. <laughs> <laughs> scrap it, scrap it. <laughs> um, you know, but they're on the side of the road hitchhiking. Um, but in, in Barcelona, this is the one that ends with the, uh, them kind of making up a little bit and, and mm-hmm. Ted realizing that Fred maybe wasn't always such a jerk and maybe some of the ways right. he excused his past actions are things I can actually rely on a little bit in more good faith. And yeah. they they make up and go back to the lake with the Spanish women that they've fallen in love right. with. And okay. I'm like, yeah. that's really cute and, and nice. And I did like it, but I also wondered, is it, is it too pat for, for a film like this that's otherwise quite biting and, and uh, does yeah. allow itself to take left-hand turns uh, suddenly? Yeah, it could be. I mean, because it, you know, pretty clearly that the that ending scene didn't make the big impression on me. Uh, and I don't know, was that was was that a? Yeah, I mean, I remember the assassination. I remember the reconciliation. I remember the flashback of the scenes by the lake and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, was was that sort of a, a concession to the studio? Because if you are looking mm-hmm. for sort of a, a mainstream date night type of movie, having that kind of bow on it at the end makes it a little bit of a more successful sell, you know, leaving smiling yeah. a romantic comedy in the sense that the couples come together and, and all's right with the world, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that feels even as you describe it, maybe a little bit, a little bit forced because of some of the complexity of some of these, you know, cross-cultural issues. Uh, the fact that, you know, you know, Fred's got this pretty significant you know, injury now, is that, you know, I mean, and, that could pull a couple together, right? No, right, right, right. I mean, well, yeah, well, I'll just have an eye patch now, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, yeah. So, I, yeah, to me, it feels like my enjoyment of the film, which probably was the one I watched the most distant from from today, um, was really just an, again just the the milieu of those characters, the the dialogue, mm-hmm. the exchanges, and all of that. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll have to go give that ending a, another look to see if it. Uh, you know, settles in with me one way or the other. <laughs> well, when when you do, and I'm sorry to I didn't mean to to, no, to that's catch fine. you off guard. No, um, but the um, 
I like it. I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've mm-hmm. kind of settled on, I'm glad it went that way because the other way can feel pat too. Like, oh, we don't want to make it work out because that would be too pat. Well, that becomes well, its own. We'll go our separate reaction. ways. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, I mean, it's a, it also is a, a cliche. Yeah. yeah, it is. And, and it's not going to be as, as winsome of a conclusion mm-hmm. for the general viewer. Right. Yeah. And it just didn't feel in keeping with, the warmth that I felt the characters always had for each other for an mm-hmm. ending otherwise to, to go forward. I was kind of glad that it's like, okay, this can work out. It might not forever. Um, who knows, but they're, they're giving it a go. These, these folks they're they've reconciled and they're, they're, um, they're moving forward despite the, some of these difficulties. And I don't mean that again in a polemical sense. I mean that in a, Hey, maybe they're kind of stupid. Maybe they're still pretty innocent, you know, <laughs> uh, in, in this, uh, in all of this that they're going forward with, but it's kind of warm to, to see and cheer them on knowing that it'll be tough, but also thinking they've been through some hard things. I think they can maybe, maybe make it even if, even if they don't stay together, even if they end up hating each other again as cousins or these relationships don't work out. There's just something about their, I don't know. I sound really patronizing. They're going to be okay. You know, I don't necessarily mean it to sound like that, but I just, I liked it. I liked the, I liked going for it. And you're right. It might've been studio. um, I'd be curious to see a little bit more of that. If that was the original, you know, his own script that he, that he wrote. I kind of wouldn't be surprised if it was just given his personality that kind of shines through in these films. Yeah. I wouldn't. For that to work. And I don't, I wouldn't think that the studio kind of twisted his arm and really, you know, pressed him to, put a happy ending on that we're not talking about brazil here you know or yeah. something like that um but but you know he's you know it is like uh, the the lot of a commercially successful filmmaker that that is a part of the calculation it's like okay what's mm-hmm. going to kind of land successfully with the audience and generate good word of mouth and get people you know thinking hey this is a, this is a good film to, especially now that metropolitan is you know, raise the bar. I mean, you've got an Oscar nomination. You're being, you know, critically praised for having this witty, sharp dialogue and, you know, a sharp young cast and and all of that. Well, okay, you've got to sort of deliver on that promise. And so you you make decisions that are going to, you know, pitch the story to to your, you know, targeted audience. And and I I don't think, you know, I'm not saying he was selling out or, you know, Mm -hmm. because I I kind of feel like, you know, he's keeping the, the, you know, the artistic and aesthetic, you know, level pretty high. And I know there's people who don't care for these types of films, but again, for the people who uh, connected with Metropolitan, I think Barcelona is a very strong follow-up. Yeah, I like it too. Do, do you want to move on to the less successful, but really, yeah. still really great film? Oh, I yeah. Think a lot of yeah. people do do probably prefer of all of these. I think it's uh, my favorite of the three as far yeah. as if you say, hey, let's put, let's put on a Whit Stillman movie. This is definitely the one I would, well, other than maybe wanting to revisit both Damsels in Distress and, and Love and Friendship, okay. um, because I I would like to check those out fairly soon. But this is my, <laughs> my, my favorite of the three, probably just because... I do feel the strongest emotional connection to the characters, to the milieu, to the music, and just to the issues that the, that these young people are sorting through. You've always said that you were part of a punk band, but was it yeah. really disco? Was it really disco? <laughs> well, you know, it is interesting because you know there, you know, I guess to cut to what's sort of a a 
pivotal or climactic scene is the whole disco sucks mm-hmm. uh, rally in Chicago at Comiskey Park. I think it was in 78, 79, when disco really was like the just the soundtrack to the American world you know i mean uh yeah i was definitely on the disco sucks side although i you know that was really more due to cultural peer pressure i mean i was a rocker you know and and Mm -hmm. i was into the big arena rock bands as a younger teen and then i got into the punk new wave and eventually played in a band for a few years made it kind of part of my identity but you know at the same time, especially the, the the choices that Whit Stillman made for this soundtrack are some of the greatest disco anthems mm-hmm. of, of the entire era. But that's that means there's there's no BGs, there's no ABBA, there's no uh, you know not, not even I don't think Donna Summer. You know, I mean the hustle there is, is in there. Some Donna Summer. Oh, is there? Uh, okay, mm-hmm. which one is that? Do you remember? I, I mean, can't remember. I remember hearing it at the beginning. I'll look while you keep on. Yeah, sure. Well, bit. but basically, it's it is the it is the club anthems, you know, and and so for Whit Stillman. His nostalgia for the music as was as a young adult. He he was not a a hippie stoner type of guy. He was not into the freaky rock music, and he talks in, in the commentary track about how you know the early seventies to him were a kind of a dark period because you know going to clubs and being social in that sort of more sophisticated way was just not the thing to do. But then when disco came along, it was like this revelation because now you know people are. A little bit better dressed. There's a little bit more of a of a of an aesthetic of, of taking good care of yourself and putting on a good presentation. The dance it's very danceable music. It's not distorted or or wild in the same way that the rock and roll was. And it's and it's danceable. It's got a great beat and, and rhythm. Whereas like the folky singer songwriter stuff of that era, you know, didn't really get you moving in the same way. So, you know, he's thinking about that as a young adult. I'm thinking about it as a kid who just grew up listening to these songs as hits on AM radio. So, uh, yeah, he, he really has a great, great taste for this particular type of music. And the soundtrack album is a, is a, it's a winner. I mean, every, every song bops and, and it's really a great collection of disco tunes. And so, yeah, having sort of made my exit mm-hmm. from the punk scene in the early eighties, even uh, <laughs> I've reconciled with disco quite a long time now and uh, enjoy both the genres, uh, you know, pretty well, easily and without any guilt or mixed conscience or anything like that. <laughs> Well, I've got, I've got something embarrassing to say. Okay. For the first time in the history of our <laughs> podcasting together, I said something wrong. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> far from the first time, far from the last. Yeah. I don't see Donna Summer on the soundtrack. Yeah, I, I didn't so think so. Right. I mean, I apologize. Yeah. I think there may have been a song where they were making out in the background and so just sure disco and the the moaning made me think of <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah know. yeah the love to love you baby right yeah no that that, that I, I do remember That's the song in in there so yeah um but, but, but yeah. yeah she's not in here but you know you've got um uh, <laughs> i really enjoyed um i put this on to listen to the to the commentary in the background one day yeah and i was like listen to the commentary and listening to the music and not the dialogue this time around. And that was really fun. You know, it was a lot of fun. I, I like the, the music as well. I, I do want to note, um, I, I like the way that David Sh- uh, Schickler in his essay for the mm-hmm. last days of disco begins. He says, what Stillman took a risk when he set his third film during and titled it after the disco era. 
whose yeah. erstwhile existence from almost the moment it ended has seemed to embarrass most Americans more than Watergate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, clearly there, there was some excess in the disco era. And, and honestly, I think some of the dis- anti-disco backlash really has its roots in racism and you know, mm-hmm. homophobia, kind of yeah. a, uh, kind of a, a disrespectful, um, view of the cultures out of which disco emerged and did become this kind of, you know, all encompassing soundtrack. I mean, it is, it was the sound of the seventies, um, you know, the, the Jimmy Carter years and, and, and all of that. Um, and, and it, it became, you know, way overdone because every, every performer, every band at the Rolling Stones had their disco phase, you know, and the Grateful Dead had a disco album, you know? And so it's just kind of like, you know, it, it became this all devouring kind of monstrosity. And when it becomes so mainstream and it's just shoved in your face and it's, yeah. you know, marketed and just milked, you know, to the, to the uttermost. Yeah. It, it does leave a bad taste, but I think getting back to the, the, the good times, you know, to, to quote one of the songs featured there, by, by the band Chic, um, it, it's it it really does have a very uplifting and 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 positive and, and life affirming quality to it, and I think that's uh, that's what just comes through, you know, uh, as the background to a story that has a lot of a, a lot of heartbreak and, and sadness and disappointment mm-hmm. in it as well. So yeah, it's it's a it's a complex mix, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the characters and the dynamics of of this of these two young women, uh, Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Sevigny. Kind of again, you know, coming from backgrounds where their needs are pretty clearly well taken care of. They're both beautiful, attractive young women who are even, you know, accused by one of their coworkers of being destined to marry some rich corporate guy and live lives of ease and luxury, which may or may not be true. But I think there's a pretty likely chance that they're not going to marry into poverty and they're not probably going to wind up on skid row somewhere. But they're still going to be facing some challenges and the stakes are, as they have been in the, all these movies, fairly high as, uh, as to what kind of decisions they make and, and who they end up uh, connecting with and, and what kind of path they settle on as far as life, career, relationships, mm-hmm. and even self-care are concerned. Yeah, they're they'd be you're kind of the foot of a mountain mm-hmm. and will they be able to climb up it or not? And just thinking about it in terms of career, they're both um, readers at a publishing mm-hmm. house mm-hmm. trying to find the book that might make their career. Yeah, And they realize that that's sometimes just dumb luck and they right. may never come across that book. And if so, their, their career is not going to last very long. But when one comes around that looks potentially promising, you know, do you, how, how much, how much of your resources do you shove into it? Um, yeah. Hoping that it doesn't crash down around you. And again, just, the, the, the silly things that can happen to to throw that off is, you know, maybe it isn't actually the Dal- Dalai Lama's brother that you've been, uh, <laughs> you've been in, in, in touch right. with about his book. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, maybe making it last. But I think it's uh, interesting that this yeah. film ends essentially with them collecting unemployment. Mm-hmm. And and kind of wondering, okay, what's the next step? Again, I think all of them have a, have a pretty good safety net. They're they're not about to go and starve on the street, and they don't right. act like it either. I don't think anyone's pretending that they will, but they are collecting unemployment because it hasn't worked out for for them yet. But it did work out for for one of them who ended up figuring out how to deal with that book. 
and it's the same kind of stress with their relationships. You know, yeah. will they be able to make the choices that lead to some stability and happiness? Or are they going to really botch this up, you know, like many of their friends and family have in the past? And how well, are they going to enjoy yeah. the time now anyway at the disco with everything? <laughs> well, well, right, down? right. Because <laughs> right, there's this this whole kind of cultural moment they're living through. But I, I do appreciate just the little the little sideways uh, glances that what Stillman gives us about the marketing of books. I mean, you're a book guy, Mm -hmm. but you know, this, this fraudulent uh, manuscript that's, that's sent as a, the biography or autobiography of the Dalai Lama's, you know, what older brother or whatever. Well, okay. Well, okay. Obviously this is all bogus, but if we market it as like, you know, new age, uh, you know, uh, philosophy or (laughs) self-help, well then it's like, yeah, it doesn't have to be true. (laughs) And, and of course the fact that they, uh, that their jobs are basically, um, you know, the victims of corporate mergers, you know, as the publishing yes. houses of yeah. kind of, of the older New York start to, you know, merge into conglomerates and become just, it's, it's, you know, it's the debate we're having today about content online, you know, rather than films as an art form. It's just, just give me material to keep the stream flowing and what's going to hook more viewers mm-hmm. in to want to pay that monthly subscription rather than let's make a film that makes a statement that really connects with audiences as a standalone piece. No, we, we want, we want content, you know? So it's like, yeah, yeah, these are the issues that in their own way, it's a, it's an older form of media, maybe feels even a little bit quaint or old fashioned now, but you know, publishers getting, you know, uh, bought up and, and the editorial perspective shifting as well, because that small publisher that kind of specializes in a certain type of book or literature, you know, we just, now you're just a subdivision of this monstrosity that's out there just you know mm-hmm. filling the airport bookshelves you know, the airport stores bookshelves or whatever uh, with just the stuff that is you know you, you want to put objects in people's hands rather than literature that's going to stand the test of time and you want to do it efficiently so that means without <laughs> as, as many employees this is yeah. I mean, this is literally going on right now with the simon and schuster yeah. Uh, Penguin Random House merger being in the news and with uh, the, the the trial about whether or not they should be allowed to merge or not happening. Mm-hmm, Stephen mm-hmm. King just testifying against the merger for those very reasons, you know, that yeah. this is this is not good for writers who will have fewer places to submit and fewer eyes trying to figure out what, you know, what to do with things. And so therefore ultimately bad for the audience, um, which, you know, we've got our other things with the publishing houses these days of, yeah. you know, your audience is basically Amazon. <laughs> right. So, no, that's your customer. And, 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 so and I, the, this, the pushing oh, of this mono, the pushing of this mono culture where everybody just mm-hmm. reads the same book or watches the same show or tunes into the same movie. I, I don't want to make a movie that's going to do $3 million gross. I want to make a movie that makes, you know, a billion dollars gross, you know, that that's, mm-hmm. that's where the action is. And, and so you're, looking for films that will connect with global audiences with familiar franchises etc and so yeah i mean these are discussions and subjects the last that are days of very... some things for us you know i mean it, <laughs> yeah it is yeah pretty pertinent to i think that some of the issues that are going on in this film of a uh, few of the characters being self-aware enough to know that stuff is changing not yeah, just in their yeah. own lives, but in, in how they might even exist in the next decade or two and how they might make money or, or subsist. And, uh, you know, I think that that's very pertinent to a lot of what we've, we've just talked about and, and in the creation of art versus, uh, yeah. you know, a, a product. Um, 
it, 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 sometimes I'm like, does this give me hope that this isn't as bad as it looks <laughs> that it's, that we've been here many times in the past? Or is it just yeah. like, no, one of these times it really is going to be the doomsday that we all think it is. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I mean, philosophically, you can say, you know, life will emerge. I mean, you know, people still have thinking brains and, and creative impulses and, you know, yeah, it's not always exactly fair or just, but you know, art finds its audience and word of mouth gets around, but you know, the, what is the audience itself looking for and who's it made up of? And I think, you know, disco is a metaphor for, you know, a, a, a good time, a vibe an aesthetic, a, a form of expression that at one point, you know, was very underground, very, you know, outsider. Then all of a sudden it becomes the huge corporate mainstream and maybe becomes diluted and and gobbled up and overexposed and and almost kind of faceless or anonymous uh, a parody of itself and then you know what seemed like this unstoppable <laughs> world devouring force all of a sudden it's like you know what that ain't cool anymore <laughs> and i mean and and that 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 same kind of uh unint- well it sh- it shouldn't be an unanticipated shift because all of these trends come and go you know that that's the nature of life and fashion and society uh but when you're in the middle of it and all of a sudden it comes crashing down and and tastes change it's like yeah it takes the wind out of your sails there should be... so as per usual you've said some things that have sparked <laughs> some some hope and and, yeah, and yeah. also some reflection and i'm thinking of I didn't catch this until you were talking about, um, you know, the sales and marketing, but, you know, Jimmy, one of the main characters here, causes all kinds of problems is an ad guy. And he (laughs) uses the club because of his exclusivity. He wants to take clients there to impress them. Um, And that's a, you know, a problem. They don't like ad guys. You know, the, the bouncer, the owner doesn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the owner himself has had some bad, bad experiences he's also obviously a a very shady kind of criminal Mm -hmm. type and he doesn't really want he doesn't really want mainstream corporate do-gooders as part i mean you know he's got plenty of business going on but he's looking for a certain type of of uh member if you will almost or of the audience an audience a scene that he's trying to cultivate here both for the aesthetics of it because i he probably does enjoy club culture but he also wants to keep certain people out because he doesn't really need prying you know straight laced uh types you know just kind of figuring out what's going on in there well and i i think it's interesting that one of the one of the guys is an older man that he's trying to take into the club yeah but it's also interesting to me that jimmy is the one who has the most guys disco is important and I don't yeah. think he's doing it from an ad man point of view. I think he's doing it from, uh, uh, from the, the vibe that he's feeling there, the life force that he seems to feel is there. And that's yeah. one of the reasons he likes to take people to this exclusive club. It is for ad. It is for his own um, reputation amongst people that he can get into a place like this with them. But it, he does feel like it's important. And then... I really like that Stillman does a big dance scene on the subway train and with oh the, 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 for the finale there yeah yeah oh there's absolutely. something that what you said about life and kind of you know people will have that those impulses to make art just kind of thought I, I kind of thought well I think that's what Stillman might be saying with that mm-hmm. 
unrealistic, you know, um, scene where the people on the subway platform are all, you know, dancing. At, yeah, as well yeah, as that was on the train. I mean, it's right. It's fun, and it does show this. Hey, things might change, but things, some things won't. Yeah, that's a, clearly a flight of cinematic fancy, and and you know, it, it's it it is a bow that you put on it. But I I really loved that moment because it was kind of like okay, here we are off to the new thing, whatever it is. But and that song "Love Train" is a it's such a beautiful <laughs> anthem. You know, I mean, I really I I endorse wholeheartedly the sentiment and the power and the and the uplift of, of the song and the lyrics and just the, the passion that 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 comes through. So I, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of that song independent of how it was placed in the movie. It was like, Oh yes, what you're talking to me, you know, it just felt, felt very personal and very satisfying. Cause uh, yeah, I, I believe that in that whole love train vibe and aesthetic. And, and again, you know, the idea of being, di- yeah, go well, di- different kind of train than the, the, the train <laughs> that was talked about in Metropolitan. That was pulled. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. different kind of love train. <laughs> yeah, sorry, for, sorry, sorry. No, my bad, my bad. I, I think Please. it was a connection that needed to be made. If, <laughs> if you hadn't made it, people in the audience listening would have been thinking it. <laughs> Please, so, please, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sure. But but you know, going back again to the 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 you know the the tensions between these these two women, Charlotte and, and Alice. Yeah. So Charlotte, that's the Kate Beckinsale character. She's the, you know, you know, conventionally stunningly beautiful. Of course, Kate Beckinsale's, you know, had a, a, a great career and she's, you know, she's got a great command of herself and her beauty and all of that. But she's very impulsive. Come, you know, kind of speaks whatever comes to mind, mm-hmm. and and again is is kind of very shrewd, but you know can sometimes come across as catty or bitchy or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But she knows what she's talking about. I mean, she's you know she she may be you know grossly um, you know ill considered or inconsiderate of of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or being just too blunt and too matter of fact but she's not really necessarily wrong either uh, alice she apologizes is much, for everything yeah. that she's done that's wrong but for things that were right she does not apologize for <laughs> exactly <laughs> and, and alice is much more sort of demure conventional probably a little bit more insecure of herself mm-hmm. um you know probably been raised to have a certain kind of uh, uh, caution and reserve and, and not letting her feelings out too too soon or too explicitly there. But that's become something that she's aware of now as a bit of a hang-up. And so she's looking to see how she can sort of expand her boundaries and get in on this, this vibe of being sort of more confident, more forthright. And, and yet it just doesn't come naturally for her. And so you feel the, the awkwardness as she's kind of groping to you know kind of retool her her basic personality and mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily work in her favor but you, you just got a sense no. of the of the of the of the of the sadness and the disappointment um but at the same time you, you can't just collapse and fall into that you've got to find a way to, to push through and, and, and move ahead yeah again i really like that stillman doesn't i mean she she is in a in a way punished for her attempts to change yeah. and, and to become a little bit less uh, reserved and, and to try to live a little bit in quotes, according to what other people might say she's missing. And she's punished for that pretty severely. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. She doesn't, she doesn't collapse under that. 
and 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 it, and her and her injury if you will is rendered mm-hmm. very sympathetically it's certainly mm-hmm, there's yeah. no there's no shame in it there's no yeah. uh no attempt to make her sort of a, a negative role model or a, a proverbial mm-hmm. i told you that was going to happen i mean that's not where whitstone was it's like this is this is the the sad tragedy of life whether it's uh, you know uh, gonorrhea herpes aids whatever i mean a a passionate youthful indiscreet moment can have absolutely life-changing effects and consequences uh a reality that also was part of the you know the the last days of disco as as mm-hmm. you know the sexual mores and just you know the cultural shift that took place and during the reagan years in the 1980s it's like yeah the formula that that got us through the end of the 70s doesn't you know doesn't yield the same results anymore and so you've got to you've got to adjust so yeah, there's there's you know there is a, a kind of a wistful, uh, almost melancholy of looking back. I mean, I think this is what Stillman himself and many of the the film's admirers kind of lamenting the fact that this golden age had kind of passed, and uh, you know left a lot of complicated problems for us to <laughs> sort out yeah. uh, in the in the years ever since. It's amazing how a film that has this much going on in it and 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 this kind of dark edge can also feel mm-hmm. so bright and uh, life affirming and mm-hmm. positive and comedic even though I none of these characters are people that I would ever think I could ever be friends with. Yeah, there's right. That's still it's not really my social scene either, yeah. right? Yeah. They're still well and there's they I think they are pretty I don't know that they but again for and maybe maybe I could because they're they're familiar in their own ways. Yeah. But but they never necessarily become good in this picture. They just are getting by, and they're getting by together in a way that I kind of like. You know, I kind of like that mm-hmm. they recognize, hey, this life, a lot of things in life are kind of screwed up. I'm screwed up. I'm going to keep screwing up. You're going to keep screwing up. Sometimes you're going to want to move out and you know, kind of slam the door on our relationship. Other, the next day we're going to be just fine and together. Um, and so you know, I think it's. It's crazy to me how in all of these films, he seems to mix this all together in this concoction that it could be a really dark, different kind of film, but it turns out yeah. to be pretty special. In it, well, in he, he, yeah, yeah. He has this kind of um, somewhat bemused and, and, you know, not completely detached, but I mean, he, he's engaged with Stillman I'm talking about here and his characters are engaged, but I think his, his sort of editorial perspective is okay. There's all this life happening out there or down there or, you know, in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you've got to sort of figure out what are you going to make of it? You know, there's, there's just so many elements that we don't have control over. Um, uh, and yet we still have, uh, at least the, the, the impression of making choices and decisions and, uh, you know, just kind of taking it all in and, and trying to keep your wits about you, no pun intended there, just, <laughs> you know, in engaging with the, the circumstances that present themselves to you. And that, that is the, the culture the fashions, the money, the attraction to other people or the repulsion from other people who you don't get along with, but you have to sort of coexist with and, and figure out, 
you know how to how to how to manage it as well. I mean, even the the the, the three young women in their little railroad apartment and negotiating <laughs> that space, you know, and, and how do you have a love life when you've got you know people traipsing in and out of your bedroom just to get to the bathroom <laughs> at the far end of the apartment? And, you know, just those those are just funny observational moments of situations that I've never exactly lived in myself, but I can I can relate and I just find the whole presentation uh, just quite droll and and uh, and delightful and engaging I mean yeah again uh, I've, I've read reviews of people even like when these Whit Stillman movies have been uh, announced by criteria at least for last days in Barcelona which is when I was kind of tuned into that you know there there is a an anti Whit Stillman you know contingent out there that doesn't hmm. like these movies that would just be as happy if Criterion had never released them. I don't really get the antipathy unless it is the, you know, the, the, the privilege. I mean, I, we should also probably say that, you know, other than some of the extras in, um, you know, the, the cast members in last days of disco, this, these are very white milieus. So they are very yeah. Yeah. homogenous in that sense. So, you know, um, Again, I think it's reflective of the reality of the society that Whit Stillman probably grew up in, and and you know certainly where he sets these characters. Um, so, not necessarily endorsing it or saying yeah, that's not an issue or not a concern, but you know at the same time, forcing diversity of cultural sorts would 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 fundamentally change these stories as well. So, uh, I can I can see what maybe where some people wouldn't enjoy them as much as I do, but I don't quite get the hostility uh, where some people really feel like these are just tedious, boring, waste of time, yappity, yappities, overindulgent. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, I just don't have that kind of harshness uh, anywhere on my radar for why that would be somebody's reaction to these films. And yet I've seen them out there. Yeah. And I remember that too, when Barcelona was released, I think a lot of people were, were pretty happy. They'd been waiting for it. Yeah. But the I missing part of the trilogy. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I remember seeing the, the, the backlash or at least not, maybe not a backlash, probably wrong way to put it, but just the, the negative, Oh, you know, b- back to that little thing. Why doesn't Criterion only release what I want them to release? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. But, but, but I do appreciate you bringing up the, some of the validity to why these might not work for people and, and legitimate reasons why they might kind of think that these are, these are against what I stand for. Mm-hmm. You know, these are, these are antithetical to, to some of my own views. I'm not going to support them, but I think part of the reason why I like them so much is Stillman is pushing beyond that a little bit mm-hmm. to say, Hey, these are pretty, there are reasons to hate this milieu. There really are. And one of the main existential concerns of metropolitan was some of us get that we're problematic. We don't know what to do about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I'm yes, I am wealthy and I'm educated <laughs> and I'm supposed to I'm supposed yeah. to use that to make a difference in the world and I don't think I can because I don't think and you know I, I but I'm also I guess I just keep going and, and they're they're struggling with that a little bit you know in, yeah. in that and I I really like how he does that renouncing all that wealth and privilege is not going to necessarily make the world a better place in fact it's not going to make the world a better place you know uh, the 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 systems and the uh, the social injustice and the oppression and exploitation of you know certain groups of people, the marginalization of voices, 
you know, that's not going to change because an individual who's in a position of privilege just decides I'm going to check out. I mean, you know, doesn't mean that they don't have ethical responsibilities mm-hmm. to think how do they, um, you know, uh, use the opportunities that life is presented them with you know but yeah. you know to just to, to hold it against these people categorically uh because they are you know born into this or have even accomplished things that have you know raised their net worth uh or they've obtained employment in certain industries or fields that you know are extremely highly compensated within the the, the boundaries of our our own society well you know you you, you can't kind of um, disregard a person's humanity just based on that. It's what they do. It's how they do it, how they, how they live their lives, where mm-hmm. we begin to make some editorial decisions. And I think Whit Stillman in, in setting these films in that milieu is, you know, reminding us that, that these are real people who are, you know, again, facing challenges and as prone to, heartbreak, disappointment, tragedy, senseless violence, you know, illness, disease. I mean, all of those, you know, besetting uh, maladies of life, <laughs> they, they do really cut across all the social demographics. But again, and, he, and he's not punching down. He's not, you know, making mockery of, of people who, you know, this may seem like a very distant you know, realm, you know, as far as their life experience is concerned. Um, so, you know, he's, he's making movies that I, I know are going to have a sort of a, a built in limit as far as who can access them or who can relate. But, uh, I feel like, yeah, he's, he's making movies that I can absolutely enjoy and, you know, people may be like-minded, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he's, he's done some good work. I appreciate the fact that, you know, these, these films were made, I think Criterion made a very smart choice and, and you know, canonizing him, if you want to call it that, and and making him part of this collection. There's one of the supplements, I can't remember whose it was, uh, but it was one of the more scholarly, analytical supplements made at the time of the Blu-ray release, but I just can't remember mm-hmm. which disc it was on. Um, the The commentator kind of talks about that, and, you know, Stillman loved the films of, like, or, well, maybe not love, but... Uh, the, the films of the thirties again, which weren't quite so critical, but still mm-hmm. analyzed this class and all that the films of Preston Sturgis, for example, right. um, and seems to have replicated that. And she brought up uh, the, the line, um, uh, these people are only superficially superficial <laughs> <laughs> that I really yeah. think that that applies. You know, again, I'm watching the beginning of Metropolitan and thinking, Oh, these, this so lack of, this is a lack of substance. Yeah. Fluff. So, yeah, right. Again, somehow he he allows us to get to know the characters in those, you know, drawing room conversations that, you know, we're not even sure they all understand what they're talking about with each other. Yeah. And I think it's for the awesome. most part, these are young people too. So that makes them more charming, certainly more yeah. innocent. Uh, they're not, you know, rich tycoons sitting there, you know, bemoaning the fact that their investments are not panning out or that the, the merger deal didn't go through or, or uh, why are people yeah. so con- not, you know, so uh, unwilling to work for minimum wage. <laughs> I mean, that, that's not the kind of uh, humor that Stillman's putting in front of us there. So I think, I think it is the fact that he does have uh, a very appealing uh, 
cast you know the the young people i think are all even if they're playing reprehensible characters they're doing so in a pretty charming way <laughs> i agree i agree I, I i'm just i'm glad that that you were the one who said let's do this one next and I, yeah, i'm glad yeah. you did yeah well I, you know with my podcast i don't, I don't well i with my podcast i'm i'm you know mainly stuck in the 1970s which is a great decade to be stuck in i, I enjoy sure. very much the films that area but i i do like to kind of dip into more contemporary things and that was the thing too i mean these are newer relatively recent movies but they sure do make 90s movie making feel like uh those were the days weren't they? because they, yes. these, these don't seem like the kind of movies that are are made or at least in, in frequent distribution in these times you know there's a lot of excellent film that's being made out there but just this kind of witty banter dialogue centric uh that, that's not getting into you know tarantino-ish kind of outrageous you know blow up in your face type of dialogue but just just dry humor witticisms and lines that you might even have to revisit a second or third time to let the full wait you know you know kind of reveal itself and i think these are very good rewatchable movies uh just to kind of you know step back into that into those dialogues those exchanges uh they they will have a very sort of comforting familiar effect as as one kind of you know you know just builds relationships with these films through through rewatching over time well about the box set then as as we as we start to close, you know, again, this is not, you don't have to buy this as a box set because they, it wasn't originally released this way. It's quite a bargain though. Yeah. Yeah. It's the way to do it. It's the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, you know, having your films not in spine order on your shelves (laughs) and you want to put them in, in one slip case, you can do that. The slip case is not spine numbered. So you also don't have to do it that way, but it is the, the cheaper way to get all of the films. It doesn't have a box or um, not a box. It doesn't have a booklet that covers all of the set. Right. Like you might get in a traditional criterion box set, but each of them come with their essays and their own supplements. And on the Barcelona release, you do get a little bit more reflection on the three films as a whole, how mm-hmm. they go together and some of the things he's concerned about with them all. So it still to me felt very much like a, like a box set. If you'd just given this to me, I would never have thought it was released in any other way other than the spine numbers, not lined yeah. up, but, but that's it. You know, I would have thought, mm-hmm. Oh, this is, a, you know, just a great box set, very full, full of outtakes, full of commentaries filled with, um, fun, you know, the, the video essays and, and commentary from the time of the film's release to kind of see Stillman's career, uh, burgeoning, um, little, fun ways to see these actors talking about the films at the time they're released and also reflecting on these films and what they've done for their lives. It's a very full experience. I thought um, going through this as a set, Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I don't have the slipcase box and you know, anybody who's seen pictures of my collection, I do have them all arranged in spine order. So I could order the box from criterion for like five bucks and maybe I will someday just to sort of have (laughs) the object, but uh, yeah, they, they really do uh, complement each other very nicely. And I think, you know, for quite a few years, it looked like Barcelona just wasn't in the mix there Mm -hmm. because of the Warner brothers thing you brought up there. But when they finally did release it, it totally made sense to, package them up and so i think what it sells for was it 80 dollars retail or, or something like that yep you're right it's three blu-rays 80 dollar srp yeah 
so yeah, you get that for half price, you know, at a Barnes and Noble sale or when Amazon marks it mm-hmm. down, uh, or even th- from the website, $63 or 64 bucks from Criterion if you want to just order it as is. Uh, I think you're getting three very solid films in a nice, handsome edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did you did you know that they package it like this then, David, where they have oh, oh, I, the Metropolitan and then the Last Days of Disco and then Barcelona on the well, actual I, box? I, I saw that, yeah, on okay. the website when I was looking into it. And it's like, yeah, and I think yeah, the, the, <laughs> the text there on the website says chronologically the tale continues with the Last Days of Disco. Yes. And then finally Barcelona plunks down a pair of love-starved upper-class men. So, so they really are kind of holding to it. Like, yes, we released it that order on purpose. You know? <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's perhaps a very minor debatable point. Um, yes. And I think The Last Days of Disco has even more of that kind of um, polish to it, you know, as far as it its does. its presentation. I mean, Barcelona is definitely a, 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 a well-financed studio film, not a big budget production, but certainly not the scrappy little, you know, bootstraps production of Metropolitan, which, you know, once you really take a close look at it, yeah, you can, you can see that these were, um, you know, cobbled together bits that, you know, made a very appealing whole. Last Days of Disco does feel like they were, you know, I mean, the licensing for all that music had to cost them a bit. Mm. I think Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Sevigny were both, you know, not not huge stars, but they were both names and they were definitely looking to get, um, you know, uh, attractive female leads for the role. I think they were looking at Winona Ryder, as mentioned as a possibility in the commentary and, others but uh i i thought they were both really well cast mm-hmm. i guess there is kind of the question why did this film underperform or why was it seen as under i mean it didn't make its budget back at least in the, in the initial release so that is kind of uh and i, I think what stillman said is that he was put into director's jail for about a decade you know so it took yeah. him a while to get uh you know get another production together i think there might have been some projects that he was working on that just never worked out and that's and that is how it often goes in hollywood um but i don't know do you have any thoughts about why last days kind of underperformed i do i mean it's it's 1998 yeah and it you know they, they are we're not to the stage where they're big blockbusters but but you know we're getting we're getting a little bit closer to that we're getting the star wars remakes in those yep. years we're yeah getting, true you know the next year we're gonna get the matrix and i just wonder if it if it felt like and and i think there might be something to that embarrassment like we're yeah, fine yeah. with a lot of these movies but i'm not really interested in the one about disco it's it's too soon <laughs> you know? yeah yeah right i mean and yeah here we are almost what 24 years later now um I, since that movie came out and so you know disco has a little bit more of a rosy nostalgic glow to it you're right in the 90s we're still kind of into you know not exactly you know grunge or alternative but you know there was just there was more of a sense of the future the new the you know not the retro in the same way yeah this wouldn't have been a film that appealed to me on its trailer back Mm -hmm. in 98 you know i i was Mm -hmm. starting college i was you know wearing my my big baggy cords and you know, <laughs> listening yep. to, to, to alternative music mm-hmm. and oh, here's this, this film about, about disco, but also, and, and I don't know how much of this would be shown in the pictures, but I, I think you're right that there are the cultural issues with disco that, that had not, and still aren't resolved. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this film kind of shows a little bit about a, a little bit yeah. of that. There is the, you know, you walk around the disco club and you, you do see uh, men dancing with men and caressing men. And you, you've got the time where they come in and in their, in their uh, wizard of Oz costumes and they're dancing and <laughs> yeah. all that. Yeah. No one seems to bat an eye. And I don't think that that was, you know, very well. Uh, I, I still think that that might've been a little bit, problematic in the in the larger mainstream culture back in 1998 to, to yeah. go back to that and see it so i i just think that some of it may have been that and it's unfortunate it's it is a you know it's a bit of a of an embarrassment that that's how it how it has been and it's a shame that it's still that way in many in many ways yeah um you know regardless of any steps that we have taken to to get a, get around some of that but i, I think that that might have been part of it yeah, um, I also wonder if 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 the film had taken, and I, I can't imagine which film and actually do it, but if they had taken more of a raunchy approach of showing probably. like the decadence or the excess of club life, uh, and you know really kind of push that to the forefront, maybe you would have had a more <laughs> popular interest because there would be all this kind of shocking, sleazy type of stuff that they could have showed. There was another movie that came out uh, just after, and in fact, there was a race to produce and 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 release uh, a, a, another big studio production called Fifty Four, which was more of a uh, a recreation of the famous or infamous Studio Fifty Four, which this movie it was just the club, the club they didn't they didn't make any allusions to which club it was it was a club that you could almost make it whatever you thought it was was it the social mm-hmm. hub was it the you know the playground of uh, you know the, you know the Mick Jaggers and the uh, you know the Andy Warhol scenes of of the 70s the the original studio 54 you know, they 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 really kind of watered it down or made it a little bit more anonymous than that it was just basically the place where people wanted to get in, be seen and, and see what was going on. But, you know, they really didn't sensationalize it either. I mean, there was enough dancing and costumes and, you know, uh, making out moments there to kind of give you a sense of what went on in the club, but it wasn't, wasn't like flaunted or Mm -hmm. ogled or, or sensationalized in that way. And I think all to the betterment of the, of the film overall. I agree with you and I'm not trying to compare it negative or, you know, I'm not trying to make a negative comparison here, mm-hmm. but the year before you've got Boogie Nights revisiting yeah. the seventies mm-hmm. culture from a very mm-hmm. different level of grit and, <laughs> and content. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it, it may be that it was both, you know, I'm talking about it culturally, maybe we were just not quite accepting of it, but you're right. Probably also culturally that might have felt too pat in, in yeah, the way kind of tame felt. and, and mm-hmm. domesticated. Right. Right. Yeah. And, 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 Metro, I wonder too if Metropolitan and Barcelona, as unique as they are and as great as the writing is, they feel like other films we've seen. Mm-hmm. They feel, you know, Metropolitan kind of feels like a Woody Allen film in a way, and and mm-hmm. Barcelona too, you know, in all honesty. And they feel also like what we're going to start getting from Wes Anderson and in the dialogue and all of that. And Last Days of Disco is is a little bit more loose and a little bit less familiar in those in those ways to me and so i just think it was a bunch of things it doesn't sometimes we're just we're just not quite there yet to accept a film on its terms and we're going to come up with reasons not to from from a variety of perspectives and it's just going to get shut down but i hope it does persist yeah uh, yeah and 
and you know keep keep raising up in its stature to become a film people refer back to and and think about because you know you're saying it's your favorite one of this set and oh, it yeah. does you know kind of bring back some some thoughts where we talked about some of the things that it analyzed besides the human relationships that are in it that mm-hmm. I think are very well done. Um, it deserves its, its space. Um, but you know, I guess we'll, we'll see how it plays out over, over time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and last days is also a woman. Uh, it's, it's led by women. I mean, it's, it's yeah, the yeah. primary focus is the two women, uh, neither of which are especially, um, you know, characters that maybe even women in the audience might want to identify with i mean they right. probably could identify with them but they're not in an aspirational way i mean if you're like charlotte you really don't want to sort of advertise <laughs> that to the world and alice is a little bit hung up and she ends up having kind of a, a sad ending so it's not like this is a you go girl type of a movie you know yeah um, and for yeah. the guys if they're not looking for women you know lead female characters that are kind of the center point of the whole plot in both Barcelona and Metropolitan, the women are more, you know, uh, side characters. I mean, they're important characters and they definitely have agency and all of that, but they're not the driving force of those films in the same way that they are for last days. So that might be another piece of it as well. Yeah. If you start looking at uh, word of mouth, mm-hmm. there are all kinds of reasons for people to not recommend this film that are, that are wrongheaded, but that are, yeah. that are nevertheless, uh, you can point to them. Well, anything else you want to say on the set? We kind of went, we we, we went backwards to, and I'm happy for that. We can go backwards all the way back to Metropolitan or Barcelona too. Uh, Anything else that that you want to say? I think, I think, I think we've hit on the high points, uh, the main observations. If uh, something else comes to me, I'll, put them in a comment on social media somewhere, <laughs> but no, this is, this has been a, a fun conversation and definitely uh, a, a set that was a nice kind of little change of pace after the world cinema project, a nice chance for me to kind of div- dive into some 90 cinema and talk about it with you, which is always a pleasure, whatever the subject matter may be. I agree. I agree. And I appreciate your time again in, in doing so again, I always feel like the lucky one. Um, <laughs> is this, yeah. this is the first time we, in, in this series that we've done films set in the, in the 1990s. Yeah. I believe this yeah. is like mm-hmm. the first time since maybe Leningrad Cowboys. <laughs> yeah. done, talked about films from this period. <laughs> right. Right. So, so and we really haven't, fun haven't really kicked around what we have up next but i imagine that might be well let, let's let's as we always do resolve to try to get to the next one a little bit sooner so we'll see yeah, what yeah. what the fall has in store for us but uh yeah i guess we could do our little uh banter about what's next uh, uh off offline there uh, outside of the recording at least i'm planning on it okay. <laughs> there will be a next time and i'm excited oh for sure Got a lot of good box sets ahead of us, so we'll see what uh, what lands in the queue. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, Please, you know, let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you, David. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks, Trevor.